to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. The first 17 verses of chapter 13, the last chapter of Hebrews, can be seen uh, not just as a collection of isolated pieces of counsel which the Apostle gives at the close of this practical section of the Epistle, but really as the practical guidelines for running the Christian race of which he has been speaking at the beginning of chapter 12. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. There is always a course to be marked out, we were reminding ourselves last Wednesday, in any race. And in the Christian race there is nothing vague about the way God means us to run this marathon race to which we are called to run it with perseverance, to run it looking unto Jesus, but to run it within the guidelines, just as they chalk or paint out lines on an ordinary race. So there are guidelines laid down for us here about the way the Christian race is to be run. Now, last Wednesday evening, we looked together at the first five of these guidelines. First of all, in verse 1, the exercise of Christian brotherly love it is in that line that this Christian race is to be run. Secondly, the exercise of Christian hospitality in verse 2. Do not neglect to show it to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And thirdly, the exercise of Christian compassion in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. The exercise of Christian morality in verse 4. And there is a very significant guideline along which the Christian race is to be run, let marriage be held in honor among all. And fifthly, the exercise of Christian contentment in verses 5 and 6. Keep your, your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never fail you nor forsake you. Now, from verse 7, we come to the sixth of these guidelines, and it could be described as the exercise of Christian memory. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and so on. Now the biblical and Christian idea of remembrance is much more than just recollecting something instead of forgetting it. For us, remembrance is really of that category, isn't it? It's a case of of recollecting something in our minds and we say we remembered and that's enough. But the biblical idea of remembering is much more than this. In verse 3, for example, you get the use of the word already. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And you find this throughout the scripture. Remember now thy creator in the day of thy youth in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David, as preached in my gospel, says Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And above all, perhaps, Jesus says, this do in remembrance of me in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Christian and biblical remembrance, therefore, is infinitely more than just calling to mind. It really means to meditate upon the Hebrew word for remember, has the idea of imprinting something. It may well have been because there was an ancient habit of imprinting something in order to remember it. And the idea has this, this content of meditation, of 
thinking a thing through, of calling it to mind in order to fill one's mind with it. And hence the word mindful, to have a mind that is full of a certain theme. Now in verse 7 you will notice that there are three verbs, all of them imperatives or commands, which are associated with this idea of remembering. And you really need all of them to see the full content of the biblical idea of having in remembrance. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Second word, consider the outcome of their life. And the third, and imitate their faith. And these are all involved in the biblical idea of remembering. This exercise of remembering is in connection with the leaders who had once been amongst them. You will notice probably previous leaders, that is, those who may now be dead. Their present ones are referred to in verse 17 and verse 24. They are encouraged in verse 17 to obey their leaders. And in verse 24, the apostle says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. But he is particularly here urging them to remember those who have taught them the word of God, the leaders they had in earlier days, those who perhaps were instrumental in giving them their grounding in the Christian faith, those in whose life they first saw the beauty of Jesus. And at a time of unsteadiness and instability and difficulty, the kind of context against which the epistle to the Hebrews is written, one great stabilizing factor to keep you on course is to remember your leaders, that is, those who at one stage in your spiritual life ministered the word of God to you, were used of God to bring you into the race, perhaps, at the beginning. Consider the outcome of their life and then imitate their faith. Now this is a very important thing because it speaks of the whole world of those whom God has sent to be an influence upon us. I think the outcome of their life in verse 7 in the RSV is probably a reference not so much to how they died as some translations and some commentators think, but a reference rather to the general quality of their life, to the general fruitfulness of their lives, what their lives have produced rather. And it seems to me a tremendously significant thing that the apostle, when these believers are wavering and unsteady and are going through days of difficulty, he says, remember those who were your leaders. Remember the fruitfulness of their lives. Remember the, the impact that their lives had, the outcome of the way they lived. And then imitate their faith. It's a very interesting thing to me that the apostles in the New Testament are not slow to encourage those to whom they write to be imitators of them, to look at the life of such men as he is here speaking about and to say, oh God, make me like that. Now that's a very important thing. I think you see, none of us really lives the Christian life apart from such influences as these. We are all of us influenced 
in some measure by those who have led us to Christ and those who have built us up in the faith. And he looks back to those who have brought them into the Christian race and he says, now remember them and consider the outcome of their life. Consider the produce of their lives and imitate their faith. There is a great danger, in other words, of Christian people cutting their roots from those who have brought them into the Christian race, of despising, as I think may lie behind what the Apostle is writing of here, of despising a former generation. I think that's the peculiar temptation of most of us when we are younger. Don't you think that's true? That we can very easily despise a former generation of Christian leaders. And I rather think that the background of this is that he is writing to those who have owed a great debt to those who labored and lived and prayed and sacrificed for the spiritual well-being of these Christians. And there is a great danger in despising a former generation of Christian leaders. I think that one of the great stabilizing factors in my own experience as a theological student when one is subject to all kinds of um, pressures, especially theological pressures, was to have the, the influence and sometimes the recollection of men like Alan Stibbs, a man whom some of you may know as the author of one or two but not very many books, a man who had a profound influence upon my generation of theological students. And Alan Stibbs taught theology in Oak Hill Theological College in London. And you know there is a way in which I'm sure many of us ought to have told him and didn't. But there is a sense in which that man's life and his ministry and all that he stood for and the godly produce of his life was a tremendous stabilizer during very stormy seasons of theological confusion when I was a theological student. And again and again one found oneself crying to God, looking at a man of that caliber and quality who had brought so many of us to a firm conviction about evangelical theology. Oh God, make me a man after that fashion. Not that we live to ape people and become unreal and unnatural. But when we look at the kind of people we long to be, the apostle is saying, remember those who were your leaders, who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Now their ministry and leadership are characterized by three things and therefore they are tested by these three things. And you and I, as we are going to be influencing generations coming behind us, need to recognize what these things were. 
They are first biblical instruction. They taught you or spoke to you the word of God. Godly living. As I have suggested to you, I think that's what consider the outcome of their life means. And consistent faithfulness. Imitate their faith. And faith here, I think, is in the sense of fidelity rather than trust in the primary sense. So this ministry and leadership of which he says they are to be in remembrance is characterized by godly living, biblical instruction, and consistent faithfulness. And it is a tremendously important thing to ask Amongst those I am influencing now, and all of us are influencing people in some sense, are people going to pray, Lord, make me like that? Here in the midst of days of wavering, in the midst of days of great pressure, are people going to pray as you influence them, Lord, make me like that, a man like that, or a woman like that. And we need to covet a life of that kind. Now I think verse 8, this very familiar verse in this chapter, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, is linked to this whole idea in verse 7. The times have changed and the world is changing and leaders change, but Jesus Christ is eternally the same and the Christ who made them the men they were is able to make you the same kind of person. That, I think, is one of the links between these verses. All that you were taught of him by your leaders, and all that you saw of him in their lives, and all that they proved him to be, he still is and always will be to his children. This is why we do not turn from what we have been taught because we are in a different generation. And it's a tremendously important thing for us to grasp this. Truth is eternal. It is not time-bounded. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And therefore we have no novel truths for a new generation. We have the same Jesus, the same scriptures, the same truth, the same gospel. And this is the kind of anchor that these people greatly needed to have for their souls. It's a tremendously important anchor for us to have also. I think one of the really important corollaries that's drawn from that is that we learn from history we learn from our forefathers. We learn from leaders of a former age. And it is to the great impoverishment of the Christian church if we neglect those who have gone before us. This is what church history is really for, you see. And it is to our great impoverishment also if we neglect the immense riches that there are in generations beyond, behind our own for us in our modern day. This is why the reprint of Puritan literature is such an enormous blessing in our generation. 
It is not that we all want to become Puritans again in the sense of having their outward guise. But it is that we desperately need the example and blessing and anointing of God that our Puritan forefathers knew and the riches of theology which they had which made them strong men of God in our generation. And when we look back to these days we say in these shallow days in which we live, Oh God, make us and give us men and women of that caliber. Remember therefore, and this remembering is a remembering that produces the same quality of Christian life and character because Jesus is the same. But that leads us also into the seventh guideline in verse 9 because verse 8 is a link, I think, not only with verse 7 but also with verse 9 and that is the exercise of Christian discernment. Verse 9, you will notice, is a warning. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is well that the heart be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited their adherents. Now here is a warning about being diverted, led away in other words from the guidelines laid down for running the race. And these are guidelines particularly to do with teaching, that is with doctrine, with the truth. And the danger that the apostle sees for those Christians who are running the race is that they might be diverted in terms of strange new novel teaching. And he urges them, do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. You get the same note in the Apostle Paul's appeal to the Galatians in Galatians 5.2 where he is appealing to them because they have gone away from the simplicity that is in Christ, from the pure gospel that he delivered to them to another which is not another gospel. And when he speaks to them about this, Paul uses exactly this language of the race. He says, you were running well in Galatians 5. You were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, especially in times of pressure, the Christian can so easily be diverted from the Christian race by diverse and strange teachings. And it is a regular method which the devil employs. And I think this issue of Christian discernment is quite vital for us in days like these in which we live when there are all sorts of peculiar sects on the streets of Glasgow. But not just there, when there are all sorts of pressures to turn aside from the centralities of the truth of God into some bypass, into some doctrinal bypass, for example. We desperately need to heed this word from God not to be deflected in the race by diverse and strange teaching. So this issue of Christian discernment seems to me to be quite vital for a true running of the Christian race. I remember a missionary leader with whom I was conferring about a number of people who were interested in missionary service 
And he said to me, increasingly the question that I am having to ask of people like that, and he said, I take it to be a major test of their spiritual stability and maturity is this. Do they have real Christian discernment? Can they distinguish between what is true and what is false? Between what is biblical and what is unbiblical? Between what is good and what is bad? And perhaps more especially, do they have the Christian discernment to discern between what is good and what is best. Now that's a very vital thing. And I think this is something that speaks of a whole world of Christian experience. And it's one of the things God wants to probe us about. Do you really have this discernment? I believe we should be crying to God in our day that he may raise up a whole generation of young men and women in the church of Christ who will have this facility of discernment. And it can't be detached from other things. It's part of the whole nature of growing up into Christ. You remember how the apostle brings this out in Ephesians chapter 4 when he speaks of those who are like children. They haven't grown up spiritually. They are like babies. They have never grown with the muscle and the fiber of Christian maturity. So what's the result? He says, well, they are tossed about and carried to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That's what happens to them. And it often is true, you know. Somebody was saying to me the other day from another fellowship altogether, you can almost always tell, he said, I can almost always tell, he was saying of his own fellowship. He said, I can almost always tell when some new strange movement arises, something that's going to divert people from the centralities in Christ. I can almost tell who is most liable to be swept along with it. And I think that's very true. Let me just set down one or two principles which seem to me to arise out of this passage. We have to deal with the whole of this in skeletal form this evening. But let me just set down one or two principles which I think arise from the passage for the exercise of Christian discernment. I want to say to you that primarily Christian discernment is not something that, that can be separated from the whole question of Christian growth. I love John Newton's great description of Christian discernment in his letter on guidance, on divine guidance. I have, I hope, encouraged many of you to get John Newton's letters, but there is a letter in that on divine guidance in which he speaks of how one judges as between truth and error and right and wrong and so on. And he says, when a man has given himself to the study of Holy Scripture, and the Scriptures have become part of the very fiber of his being, then he develops a faculty of judgment, like to a musical ear's judgment of sound. Now, you know how there are people who have no musical ear, whatever, and they can't tell the difference between harmony and cacophony. Somebody is playing the piano, you know, and making a frightful mess of it. And there are people, 
as someone I know very well who has this uh, problem. They, they may sit and listen to someone playing the piano, and it's absolutely fearful, and they will say, beautiful, that was lovely, you know. I greatly enjoyed that, and it's not hypocrisy. It's just they can't tell the difference between harmony and disharmony. But you know, when a musical ear is trained to judge of sound, then it immediately can tell. And there is something that causes the soul of that person to shrink when a wrong note is played. Or when a discord sounds, it goes right through their being and jars them. Now, Newton has cottoned on to this, and it is a most accurate description. That, that is the kind of discernment which almost immediately recognizes there is something not right here. Now, this isn't a highland faculty of the second sight. This is biblical, spiritual discernment. And the principles are these. True Christian stability arises from a true Christian ministry. That seems to me to be fundamental. And I think that is why in verse 7 he is recalling their leaders who spoke to them the word of God. There is a connection, you see, between this and verse 9. Verse 7 is the positive. Verse 9 is the negative. Remember the leaders who spoke to you the word of God. That's the positive. The negative is, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, you see, it is getting your roots down into Christ. My dear Christian friends, it is getting your roots down into Christ and into his word, which is the vital thing for Christian stability. That's what Jesus was teaching us in the parable of the sower when he spoke about the shallow soil, where the roots couldn't get down and lay hold on the soil, and the plant therefore wasn't stable, and it couldn't stand the storms and stresses because it had no depth and no root. And that's what Paul is speaking about when Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4, he speaks of those who have not grown up into him and thereby have become stable as adults rather than unstable as children. Have you ever seen a child on a windy day delighting to allow himself to be blown along with the wind, you know, in the street. Well, now, there are many Christian people, and it doesn't depend merely on time or on the number of years you've been converted. It depends on how deeply your roots have gone down into the Word of God, both written and incarnate. And that is where Christian stability truly arises from. That is why, in the long term, I do believe that stable Christian men and women are only produced out of the ministry of the Word. Whether here, alone, wherever you get it, that's how it's produced and there is no other way in the long term. The second thing that I want to say is that strange teachings 
and strange teachers have to be tested by the tests which are mentioned in verses 7 and 8. One, faithfulness to the word of God. Two, the fruitfulness of their lives. Now, I think that's a very important thing. What kind of people does this ministry produce? I think that's a great test. What character and quality of people does this teaching produce? Does it produce strong, stable, mature men of God? Is that the character and the caliber that it produces? Because a ministry has to be tested by this. That's one of the very solemn things about being in the ministry, as we say, in the sense in which some of us are full-time. We are tested by what we produce. And thirdly, strange teachings and strange teachers have to be tested not only by faithfulness to the Word of God, which your leaders spoke to you, and the fruitfulness of their lives, but by how they relate to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And you have often heard it said of strange and diverse teachings that the primary thing to ask is, what do they think of Christ? If they are wrong in relation to him, they will be wrong everywhere. And so when you start to think about things that arise at the doorstep like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism or whatever else. The primary question you ask is, what do they think about Christ? And the third thing is that strange teachings often minimize grace. Look at verse 9, halfway through the verse. It is well that the heart be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited their adherence. Now, let me just point out to you that it's a very significant thing that many false teachings and many false doctrines of all sorts minimize grace. They maximize what we do rather than what God does. They maximize the outward rather than the inward. The taking of foods, for example, in this case, rather than feeding on Christ in our hearts by faith. And clearly many were wanting to draw them away from feeding on Christ, from resting on His grace to something that they were to do, that is, to be partaking of foods, which perhaps was the particular problem that they were facing, something which we are rather unfamiliar with, which, which was obviously a problem to these Hebrew Christians. They were being taken away back into Judaistic uh, practices again. But let's take the general principle that one of the great bulwarks against false teaching and various semi-Christian distractions which one finds in the world today is a strong and solid grounding on the doctrines of grace. And that is why we need so desperately to be grounded on these great central doctrines of the grace of God. Because so much false teaching 
minimizes grace. It does seem that there was some alternative or addition to the absolute sufficiency of God's grace in Christ by which these Hebrew Christians were being enticed away. And what's really being emphasized in verses 10 to 14 is that our sufficiency lies in Christ and on our spiritual feeding on him. There is, of course, a rich background in these verses in the Old Testament. Verse 10, for example, is a reference to the fact that the priest was never allowed to eat of one particular sacrifice described in Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement, where the animal was carried out after it was sacrificed outside the camp and was burned there. And the Apostle's point is that in Christ we have something infinitely better. We feed on him. He is the living bread by whom we are sustained. And so he says, we have an altar, verse 10, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now that is obviously a reference to what the altar was pointing ahead to, which is Christ's sacrifice. We have an altar. That is the altar on which Christ laid himself. And just as those priests were debarred from eating of this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, we, by contrast, are able to feed on Christ. We do not need these extra foods, then, of which they have been speaking. We feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. And he who is our sufficient sacrifice is also our sufficient sustenance day by day. And this is what the Apostle is really emphasizing in these verses. But from this picture of the animal taken outside the camp, which you can read of in Leviticus 16, there emerges the eighth guideline for running the Christian race. And that is the exercise of Christian discipleship. The key word in verses 11, 12, and 13 is the word outside. Did you notice how often it occurs? Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And as a fulfillment of what this was typifying in verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, verse 13, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing, as the authorized version better puts it, his reproach. So you'll notice the threefold repetition of the word outside. If the previous verses have spoken of how the Christian life is to be lived, that is, feeding upon Jesus, <coughs> resting on grace, these verses tell us where it is to be lived. In verse 13, therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now this is a reference, of course, to the exercise of Christian discipleship, Christian separation, as it were, Christian distinctiveness. That is a distinctiveness of life. And here the apostle, as he sees them, tending to be drifting away from Christ, tending to drift back from him. He says, rather than drift away, let us go forth to him outside the camp, 
willing to bear his reproach. And where Jesus is, is outside the camp. And this is what discipleship is. It is a tale of two cities in verse 14. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. Christian living is really a tale of two cities. The perishing city of this world, the city of vanity fair, as Bunyan calls it, and the other, the eternal city of Zion, the new Jerusalem, the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, we can very easily sing, you know, we're marching to Zion, but the great question is, does my life bear witness to that? Does my life bear witness to the fact that I am really going to Jesus with my eyes set upon things that are eternal, that I am living a distinctive kind of life, a different kind of life, and let us not run away from it, beloved. When I was newly converted, 20 goodness knows how many years ago, I don't know exactly when I became a Christian, but it must be nearly 30 years ago now. That's horrifying, isn't it? At that time, Christian separation from the world was quite easily identified. There were certain things that Christians didn't do. There was a list of them almost, you know, and people could have told you right away. Oh, yes, you can recognize this person, this Christian, because he or she doesn't do this, 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 and this. And that, of course, was a form of fearful legalism, and it produced a great deal of merely outward conformity and could have been a very, very dangerous thing for a lot of people. What I want to suggest to you this evening, however, is that the pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction. So that in so much of the Christian world as I see it in our generation, there is practically nothing that is distinctive about the Christian's way of life. And one has to ask, is there really any evidence that God's people have gone to Jesus out with the camp bearing his reproach? I think there is something that's very important here. The great challenge, you see, is who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the King? The exercise of Christian discipleship involves us in recognizing that while we live in two worlds, we only belong to one. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Lord Jesus so that all the standards that control our life do not come from society around us but from God and from the revelation he has given us of the life he means us to live. That's the standard that we are to live by. And this is the guideline for running the race. We go to Jesus out with the camp. We really need to be faced in all sorts of ways in the evangelical world with this in these days. May I take a moment to read to you some words of Professor Finlayson's 
which I came across many, many years ago in a little book called The Cross and the Experience of Our Lord. And he is quoting these words from Hebrews 13.12 in another connection. He says, What is the appropriate response that God expects from us? Let us therefore go unto him outside the camp bearing his reproach. That is the whole of the Christian life, going and bearing, going and bearing, going outside the camp because a crucified Savior has never been taken into it. They have tried to put garlands on his cross. They have tried to perfume the rude and accursed tree, but in its naked ugliness and unmasking of human guilt and sin and shame, the cross is still outside. And you and I have gone there. The day we believed in Jesus as the Savior of our souls, he took us outside the camp. There was a time when you thought your salvation could be found inside, but you proved it false. And when you looked for salvation without, you felt a drawing power that broke your link with the camp and bound you to Jesus who died upon the tree, and you identified yourself with the sin he bore, and you reached to him in adoration and gratitude and faith, saying, he loved me and gave himself for me. And then... As you go to worship him and to live for him, you have to go outside the camp. Is there no worship of Christ inside the camp? Oh, yes. But you remember how they worshipped him there. They took off his seamless robe. They put on him a shabby robe of purple. They put a crown of thorns on his head and a sickly reed in his hand and bowed the knee, saying, Hail, and they worshipped him. That is the worship that is given to the Lord inside the camp, where he is robbed of all his glory. But that is not the Christ who saved your soul. He is outside the camp. And you worship him there. Yes, and when you serve him, you go there. Oh, but you say, I don't believe that. I think that what's really important is staying inside and making the best of the situation there and braving a bare witness whenever I can. I believe in meeting men on their own ground, being just as they are, and joining with them as far as I can possibly go. And I believe in participating with them. Finlayson says, well, you know, I'm in a dilemma. In theory, I can't find a flaw in that. But in practice, it just never works. It's been a complete failure since Lot first tried it in Sodom. What am I to do then? If you want to live for your Redeemer, go unto him outside the camp. Get the ordination of his pierced hands and come back into the world bearing the light of his authority in your face. And men will take knowledge of you that you have been with Jesus. That's the exercise of Christian discipleship.
can we hurry through the remainder of the exercise of Christian praise in verse 15? Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Here is another guideline for running the Christian race. A heart which is offering the one sacrifice we are able to offer. We offer no more sacrifice for sin, but we offer a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And in verse 16, another kind of sacrifice, the tenth guideline, the exercise of Christian liberality. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. <coughs> Doing good and sharing, and both of them are described as sacrifices. Do you notice how the Christian life is sacrificial all the way through? It's sacrificial in that we go bearing Christ's reproach. It is sacrificial in which we are not done with sacrifices. We have a sacrifice of praise to render to God day by day continually. And then we have a sacrifice to make in doing good and caring and sharing what we have. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And this is a most practical form of sacrifice, sharing what you have. Some of you spotted my mistake the other week at the prayer meeting when I was talking about the missionary giving amongst us. And uh, I had said it was 60p and... Uh, that's why one at least of my family isn't very good at mathematics, as you'll realize. It's actually, do you know what our sacrifice to God comes to in terms of the missionary giving of the 900 members of St. George's Tron? It comes to 6p a week for each member. If you have a budgie, you'll pay more for birdseed in the week than that. Doth a man love God more than his budgie? That's the kind of question I'm prompted to ask. And how deep has Calvary bitten into our lives, beloved, when this is our caring Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.